Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Father God, uh, we come to you today uh, poor, needy. Uh, We come to you today expectant. Father, our hearts are always in need of encouragement and our faith is always in need of being strengthened. So we pray today that through the power of your word and spirit that you would use this time that we've set aside to help us to be more faithful followers of Christ. Able to stand firm through any difficulty and trial looking unto Jesus, the the author and the finisher of our faith who uh, glorified you through his perfect obedience even to a cross and who compassionately loved us and gave himself up for us. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. So uh, we live in a culture today that's obsessed with superheroes. Uh, The Marvel movies of the last 20 years are probably one of the most successful franchises in history. And even if you don't know a lot about superheroes, you probably know that most of them have a secret identity right? Batman's really Bruce Wayne. Spider-Man's really Peter Parker. Uh, Shadowcat is Kitty Pride. That's a deep cut, but it's okay. <laughs> maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. That's fine. No, no points lost. But these heroes, they wear capes and they wear masks and they hide themselves behind costumes so that they and the people that they care about can have something approaching a normal life in those brief moments when they're not out like fighting evildoers. Uh, But the most famous hero with a secret identity is probably Superman. Probably Superman. And part of the reason for that is that his secret identity is the most unlike him. It's Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent. Now, inside, he's always Superman. That's why Clark's the secret, right? Inside, he's always Superman, but to the most important people around him, you know, he's just Clark, you know? Normal, everyday, suit and tie, glasses wearing, nine-to-five, daily planet working Clark. Uh, But Lois Lane, she knows his real identity, and that changes everything about their relationship, When she's in danger, as she often is, she calls on him because she knows he'll come. If bullets are flying, she hides behind him. She hides behind him and she's not hurt. And the fact that Lois Lane knows who Clark Kent really is changes everything for Lois. Her knowledge and certainty in his identity causes her to trust and to rely on him. And as we pick up in our passage in the book of Luke today, we're going to encounter John the Baptist at a moment where he's not exactly sure about Jesus's identity. And it really matters. Uh, Just as there would be deadly consequences for Lois Lane if she was wrong about Superman, the consequences are huge for John the Baptist if he's wrong about Jesus. Can he trust him? Can he rely on him? Is Jesus who John has been waiting for, or should he keep waiting? Well, as Jesus helps John 
in this recorded moment in scripture, my prayer is that this story helps us too. Can we trust and rely on Jesus? And so our big idea for today, the thread we're going to pull is this, that because Jesus is who he says he is, we can be sure that following him is worth it no matter what. Our three points or three broader strokes to consider as we look at the text today are that the identity of Jesus matters, that the reality of our circumstances matter, and that the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel matters. So let's take a look uh, one more time at the first part of our text, and then uh, we'll get into our first point. Luke 7, 11 through 17. It says, soon afterward, he went to the town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, while this is a relatively short passage, uh, I think that we can actually learn a lot about Jesus from an encounter like this. So our first point is that the identity of Jesus matters. And when I use that word today, identity, I use it because I think we're getting to know Jesus here. We're getting to know his heart and his motivations. We're seeing who he is and what he is capable of. And so in this point that I'm dividing into three sections, we'll see as we learn more about Jesus, uh, we'll see Jesus's compassion or who does he choose to help. We'll see Jesus's authority. What does he do to help? And we'll see Jesus' glory. Why does he do what he does? So the identity of Jesus matters. Let's consider Jesus' compassion. As we just read, Jesus is traveling with both his disciples and a crowd. And this is the crowd that's been following him uh, since he preached his sermon on the mount in chapter 6. And Jesus and his crowd encounters and bumps into a very different crowd. Uh, Luke 7, verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Luke is trying to make clear to us the deep sadness of this situation. A woman who has already lost her husband has now lost her son, her only son, in the prime of his life. And she is alone. And she mourns for this. And the crowd, possibly the whole town, it mourns with her because her suffering is and will be great. In those days, there would be few people more vulnerable than a, a, a woman 
in this woman's situation. Uh, With no husband and no son, she was almost certain to have a tremendously difficult life of subsistence and maybe destitution. And her education would have been minimal. Her cultural significance in the social hierarchy of the day, it would have been non-existent. Her income would have come from either tedious day labor or from begging at the gates of the town. At the death of her son, this woman is standing on the precipice of being an outsider in almost every area of life. And when this woman weeps, she weeps for her son. She also weeps for all of the possibilities, all the plans, all the hopes that she had for what her life could have been. All of it is lost, and now she is nobody. Now, last week when Tyler uh, preached, we saw Jesus encounter a somebody, right? A Roman centurion. More than a man, he's a man of status. More than a soldier, he's a leader of soldiers. And in this period of history, more than a Jew, he's a Roman. He's the occupier. He's the conqueror. The Jewish leaders, they were happy to go to Jesus and ask if he could heal this Roman centurion's servant. After all, if they help him, he might help them. This is the power dynamic. It could be good for Jesus too, you know? Maybe he could grease the wheels of power a little. If he does it just right, he might be able to keep what he's doing. And to those on the outside, Jesus healing the centurion's servant, it makes perfect sense. The centurion asked for help, for one. The Jewish leaders asked for help. Healing this person could score Jesus some points, and it would be good for him politically, because this guy is a somebody. But the widow is nobody, a nobody to everybody but Jesus. Luke 7, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. This woman didn't come to Jesus. She didn't ask him for help. She had nothing to give him. She had no status before him. She might not have even known who he was. But Jesus knew who she was. He saw her and he had compassion on her. And a crowd Like this today, I'm sure that somebody needs to hear this wherever you are and whatever is going on in your life, Jesus sees you and has compassion on you. Jesus says to this woman, do not weep. In some ways, this could be a cold or a cruel thing to say. Of course she should weep. Her son is dead. But Jesus can say this, he can say it, and he can mean it because he can take away the reason for her weeping. And just a little while earlier at the Sermon on the Mount, he told these same crowds that are following him, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. And he's about to stand on those words in the most powerful way imaginable. We've seen Jesus' compassion, uh, his compassion and who he helps. And we're about to have another piece of Jesus' identity revealed. Let's look at Jesus' authority. 
his authority. What does he do? Luke 7, starting at verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, for those of us in here who are Christians, believers, uh, the raising of the dead might have in some way lost some of its awe-inspiring qualities. After all, we worship a Savior who is risen from the dead. And our hope is that one day we will experience our own resurrection when he comes again. But I promise you, the raising of the dead in scriptures is actually quite rare. It's special. It's unique. This is something that only God can do. And he has done it up until this point sparingly. In the entire Old Testament, only God's prophets, Elisha and Elijah, raised the dead. And this encounter with the widow, uh, with Jesus, is the first of three people that Jesus will raise from the dead during his earthly ministry. But this is the first. Up until this point, Jesus had healed the blind and the deaf and the sick and the lame, those possessed with unclean spirits. But raising the dead is new. And raising the dead is important. Death in scripture is the result of man's sin against God. It's a curse that we all bear. Romans 5.12 says as much. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So because of sin, everyone one day will die. Death is something that we have tried Uh, in vain to have authority over for thousands of years. And in fact, today, our lifespans are indeed longer than ever due to medical advances. I mean, I have a great aunt who's 107 years old. She's still a classy lady. (laughs) Uh, And today's technologies to evade death, uh, they include things like cryonics, a pseudoscience that freezes the recently departed in liquid nitrogen with the hope that one day we'll have developed a cure to whatever caused their death and that we can bring them back to life and fix the problem. Uh, A recent article in The Atlantic, uh, the CEO of Cryonics Institute said that we're like a hospital, but we care for patients that are metabolically challenged. (laughs) Metabolically challenged. What an optimistic way (laughs) to talk about the finality of death. (laughs) But try as we might, we can't stop death or reverse it. But Jesus can. And as the book of Luke goes on, Jesus will continue to talk a lot about the kingdom of God. And his miracles will show us what the kingdom is like and who the king is. By raising the dead, Jesus confirms that he is the king. Raising the dead is the ultimate miracle. And by doing so, by exercising authority over death, Jesus is revealing to all that he's the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. Now, right now, this revelation is implicit in Jesus' actions. He'll make it explicit uh, at the end of his earthly ministry when he says to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came 
and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And Paul in his letter to the Colossians expands on Christ's authority in Colossians 1, 15 to 16, where he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So everything is subject to Christ. And at his word, death dies. So look at this picture that we have. Jesus stops the funeral. He literally stops this procession of death that's before him, and he restores life. Only Jesus can do this. Death has no power against Jesus, and death has no place in his kingdom. Jesus speaks, and the man lives, and the compassionate Savior returns an only son to his mother. Where death has come to take, Jesus has come to give, and what started as the worst day in this mother's life has turned into the best. Weeping has turned into laughing. So why does Jesus do this? Why has he come? Is it just because he's compassionate? Is it just because he wants the world to see his power and his authority? He does it for glory. And we'll end this first section by looking at Jesus' glory. Jesus does everything in his earthly ministry to glorify God the Father. And so when he acts, look at how the people respond. Uh, finishing the first part of our passage, Luke seven sixteen to 17. It says the fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fear seized them all. They glorified God and his fame spread. At the end of our first part, we see Jesus act and God glorified and worshiped. Now don't get too hung up on the fear part at the beginning here, because fear is a totally normal reaction to seeing a dead man raised, I promise you. Uh, uh, it's also a completely normal reaction when you realize that you are a sinner standing in the presence of a holy God. Adam hid among the bushes. <laughs> Isaiah cried in the throne room. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the disciples in the presence of the resurrected Christ trembled. Yes, they feared, but they glorified God. They marveled at his goodness. They praised him for his mighty deeds. They worshiped him rightly as the Lord over all. They glorified him. So does Jesus heal to show his compassion? Yes. Does he heal to show his authority? Yes. Does he heal so that God might be glorified? Yes, these are all important. And Jesus is a multitasker. He's getting it all done all at the same time. He's able to do that. It's all for these things. And when it comes to glory and Jesus' desire that God the Father would be glorified, 
and uh, this shared Trinitarian relationship where the Father and the Son glorify one another, we have no better view into the mind of Christ than John 17, 1 through 5, where it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has come that we might know the heart of God through him. That we might know the power of God through him. And that we might glorify God through him. What motivates Jesus is the Father's glory. And his miracles are meant to show the goodness and the power of God and to increase his fame in this world so that all will glorify him. We see that in the last bit of our text in the people's response. Luke 7, 16b through 17, it says, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, the town of Nain was just a few miles from another town that's in the Bible called Shunem. And the town... This is the town where the prophet Elisha raised to life another son. Elisha was a great prophet in his day. And these people know that in Jesus, they have encountered someone who has a special relationship with God. They don't know everything, but they know that. Now, of all people, they make this connection and they're going to tell everybody because miracles are back. This, we're the town right next to the town where Elisha raised the dead, but now Jesus has raised the dead. God is doing something again. And so they're spreading this message to everybody, and that includes the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John and his disciples, they would have been following all of the work of Jesus very intently. Remember what we know about John from our study of Luke. His birth was announced by the angel Gabriel. He was filled with the Holy Spirit uh, before he was even born. He's the herald and the forerunner of the Messiah. He leapt in his mother's womb when Mary, who was carrying Jesus, came near to Elizabeth, his mother. He had recently met Jesus. He baptized him, and John saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and heard a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is John the Baptist's experience with Jesus so far. And back in Luke, uh, uh, well, so that's our experience of John so far, but now John is in prison. That's his experience, but now he is in prison. And we read about this back in Luke 3, 18 to 19, where it said, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked 
up John in prison. And this experience of John's leads us into our next section. We've seen how the identity of Jesus matters, and now we'll see how the reality of our circumstances matter. John is in prison for being bold enough to call out sin in the leaders of his day. And he will not see Jesus again, nor will he see any of his miracles. He will be in prison until he dies, and he most likely knows it. But here he is listening through the reports of his disciples about all that Jesus is doing. So picking up in Luke 17, verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, a minute ago, I walked us through everything that John's experienced, who he is, everything he knows about himself and about Jesus. And that's what makes this question devastating. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? It shows that God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, is different from how even John thought it would be. The text says that his disciples reported all these things to him. That includes the healing of a Roman soldier's servant, a military occupier's servant, and the raising of the dead of a random nobody widow from a town that nobody cared about. You know, I think we're used to the humanity of like the Apostle Peter. I think we're used to him getting his foot in his mouth, saying dumb things. Look at Moses and Elijah, let's make some tents. (laughs) I love that part. But I think we we encounter Thomas, his doubt, his lack of belief until he puts his hands in the wounds of Jesus. We identify with that. That makes sense to us. Be us too. But I'm not sure that many of us have considered John the Baptist's moment of doubt here. Jesus saw the widow and had compassion on her and raised the dead. And John is thinking, do you see me? The nobody widow goes from having her life ruined to having it restored. But the herald and forerunner of the Messiah is rotting in prison. And he has a death sentence. And so John swings from having great confidence to having great doubt. Have you ever done that? Like in the same day? (laughs) He sees Jesus' blessing to others, but he doubts Jesus' identity when he's not blessed. The dire circumstances of the widow matter to Jesus, but do the dire circumstances of John? In essence, he asks, what about me? Have you ever looked at other people and how God has seemingly blessed them and thought, what about me? Of course you have. (laughs) Of course I have. John's in prison. That's his reality. But what's ours? Are you physically sick and unable to get well? Are you mentally ill, depressed, anxious, bipolar, borderline, or traumatized by a situation or a sin against you? 
Are you perpetually discontent, frustrated, and cannot get ahead? Is there sin in your life that you feel like you have tried to turn from without success for decades, though you have begged for deliverance? Do you rejoice when others are blessed, healed, and delivered? Or do you ask, why them and why not me? Do we trust God when things don't go our way? Or do we ask, are you really there? Do you see me? So we ask with John, do the reality of our circumstances matter to God? Or should we look for another way? And John asks a deep question, and it is one that we will all be tempted to ask. If you haven't yet, it's coming. So this will be wisdom in advance, like our Proverbs series was, hopefully. Do we doubt God's goodness when life seems unfair, difficult, or cruel, and ask, how could a good and merciful God let this happen to me? When you doubt if your circumstances matter to God, Brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. And when you think that God doesn't see you, or you think that your circumstances are unfair, difficult, and cruel, when you ask, how could a good and merciful God let this happen to me? You need to stop. And you need to instead ask, how could a good and merciful God send Jesus to die in my place for my sins so that I could be restored to God and one day enter his kingdom with a righteousness that I don't deserve? The reality of our circumstances matter so much to God. Jesus sees you. And he has compassion on us all. And in Jesus, there is nothing that this world can take away that Christ will not restore. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9 say this about our salvation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. So where we used to ask, why me, in response to our trials, we can ask, why, why me? Why me, in light of Jesus' sacrifice that restores us to God? Why would you do this for me? The punishment we deserve, Jesus took. And the righteousness that was his alone, he gives to us freely, compassionately, because of his love for us. 
Having the full gospel before us, we have something that John the Baptist didn't have. But in the next section, we can see how Jesus kindly answers his question and continues to give us hope today. Picking up again in Luke 7, 20 through 23. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. We have Jesus asserting his identity as the savior that John can trust and rely on by way of his actions and his fulfillment of prophecy. And our last point is that the veracity of the gospel matters, that the truthfulness of the gospel matters. Truth uh, today has kind of become a dirty word. Have you noticed that? Um, Have you noticed the denial of basic realities in our relativistic postmodern culture. I recently watched a documentary where uh, a guy was interviewing a college professor, the head of a department. And he said, I'm just trying to get to the truth. And the professor responds, I'm really uncomfortable with that language. You keep invoking the word truth, which is condescending and rude. This line of thinking is not entirely new or novel. In fact, before his crucifixion, Jesus encounters the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who ultimately is the one who sentences him to death. And Pilate asks him in John 18:38, "What is truth?" This is not new. But truth is not condescending or rude. And it's not unknowable. Jesus says in John 8, 31 to 32, uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth about God, about our meaning and our purpose in life, about the nature of reality, about our need and God's redemption It's revealed to us by God himself through the scriptures. And in the scriptures today, we see that Jesus answers the question that John's disciples posed to him. uh, First, with the truth of his actions. Uh, Look again at verse 21. What does Jesus do? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So before he even answers John's disciples with his words, he answers with his actions. He shows them. The question of whether or not Jesus is the Savior is asked. And then Jesus does what the Savior does. The king shows off his goodness and he shows off his rule over all creation as a foretaste of his coming kingdom. The herald was not wrong. He invites John's disciples to look and see. 
But in case there was any more doubt, Jesus answers with words as well. Specific words, where simultaneously he's listing what he's done while basically quoting Isaiah's messianic prophecies. Uh, Let's look at Isaiah's words about the coming Savior and then see what Jesus said. Isaiah 29, 17 through 19. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? And that day the deer shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Then in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6, he says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so what does Jesus say? In verse 22, he says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Just a couple of things here and then we'll begin to close. Jesus uses his actions and the scriptures to prove his identity, to show John and show us today that he is who he says he is and that we can put our trust in him. Now, everything in this list of things that Jesus has done is amazing, but we can make an assumption about what Jesus thinks is most important. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, you might think, if you were making this list for yourself, uh, that the dead being raised is where you might want to end your list of accomplishments, right? But Jesus ends with the poor having good news preached to them. And in case you were wondering, we are all poor. When it comes to what Jesus is talking about here, we are all poor. There's nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. There's nothing that we can bring There's no influence that we have. There's no status we've attained or privilege that we have been born into that can bring us into God's kingdom. Instead, we come to the Lord in our spiritual poverty and take Jesus. And when we do Jesus' words from his Sermon on the Mount in the last chapter, meet us, Luke 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. And Jesus ends his message to John by saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offend, it can be also translated as stumble. So one translation 
uh, says, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me, is offended on account of me. Blessed is the one who sees Jesus and doesn't say, that's not how I want to be saved. This is not what I expected. I don't like how he does things. I can't trust him if trusting him doesn't result in blessing the way that I define it. Our Lord is working his will in this world, but because of the deceitfulness of sin, he is often working in ways that can be difficult, confusing, or disappointing to us. In those moments, we can look to Jesus and see how he responded to his circumstance and the excruciating reality of his coming death on the cross to pay for our sins. He cries out to God and prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we want to follow Christ, we must follow his example here too. When we think that the cost of obedience is too high in light of our circumstances, we should pray for relief. We should pray for healing. We should earnestly pray for God to change what we cannot. And full of faith, we should conclude prayers like this in the same way as our Savior. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when Jesus tells John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, our Lord is telling John to hold on to the better hope of the gospel, to trust and rely on him, even if it costs him everything in this life. And Jesus is speaking to us today. Your difficult circumstances may not ever change. But the compassion of Jesus never changes either. His power to conquer sin and death are sure. And neither of them will separate us from God and his love. Love that was costly and sacrificial. Love that will carry us into eternity. And the good news for those that believe that Jesus is who he said he was is that following him is worth it no matter what. For those who follow Jesus to the end, and I'll close with this, he promises in John 14, verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's pray. Father God, um, Lord, it is uh, humbling to uh, get taken out of um, the reality of our difficult circumstances and be confronted uh, with the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray uh, that our eyes would be able to shift um, from our own dire circumstances. And Lord, that we would be able to rejoice in how Jesus conquered his difficult circumstance on our behalf. 
God, I pray uh, that in our moments of doubt, we would stop uh, asking, why me? How could you let this happen to me? How could you do this to me? God, that we would instead be humbled. Lord, and know that we are not owed anything in this life. God, that there is uh, pain all around us and it's real. But Lord, you have uh, come into our world, come into our reality, and you have so uh, firmly changed and promised a future for us. God, that we can bank all of our life on it, no matter what our, our circumstances are. God, I pray that that would be a help to us, a healing to our souls, and it will give us uh, joy uh, as we see others blessed and it will give us a longing and sure hope, even in those moments where we are wondering what you are up to. God, be with us now as we finish the service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.